If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. The Las Vegas Electronic Show. It's like it's like the ultimate candy store uh, for those in tech. And we've talked to Derek Sardo about this over the years for... Uh, for quite a while. Oh, we're waiting for him. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, so anyway, this, this show is, is sort of like, um, you know, it's everything that's hip, everything that's great. And he used to attend it quite a bit, uh, back in the day and, and come back with, with all the things that, uh, we would talk about. And, and, and oddly enough, one thing that he did bring up many, many years ago, and we're certainly talking about now is AI. So let's bring in Derek Sardo, president of Rolling Thunder, thunder.ca to find out more. He's with us now. Derek, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing great, Scott. Long time. I know it's been a, it's been a terribly long time. I apologize for that, and we'll try to correct it. And I'm not sure really if we want to talk about Stones or the Las Vegas Electronics Show, because I could go either way here. Uh, but let's start with the show. And I, I remember when we've chatted about this for years and years and years, and I remember you a long time ago talking about AI, and here it, it seems to be front and center. Uh, How many years ago did I start talking about it? That's, that's got to be... You know, 20 years ago. I, I, I bet it's 20, 20 years, years ago. ago. Yeah, easily, easily. And you, now you've got, you've got everything in AI. You've got fridges AI. You've got pet devices. You've got medical devices. Everything's using AI. Why are we scared of it? Should we be? Well, you should be scared of it, yes, but you should embrace it as well. So I'm, I'm two sides of the coin there. Uh, I, I think that the AI um, can be bad if it's used in an improper ways. Um, you know, anything that we can do now um, with our own brains, we can do that much better, that much quicker, that much faster um, with more knowledge with AI. So when we take the bad part of that, let's say it's a hacker, a hacker using AI, not a good idea, but uh, uh, medical research using IA, great idea, because we can have access to vast amounts of data and uh, parse that that a human brain can't do. Uh, like anything used for good, not evil. All right. What's catching your eye at the Vegas Electronics Show? Well, the, uh, cars are the big thing, I would say, this year. Um, of course, you, you spoke about AI. So AI is the major theme. It's the overall theme. But cars, there's a lot going on in cars. Um, steering, where we're, our traditional cars have been, you know, one set of wheels is, is, is turning and steering. Uh, how about multi or omnidirectional steering where wheels are going every which way and at mm. high speeds now? So parking really is uh, the ability to, to pivot um, in place and move and drives uh, any way we want to drive. Uh, think of it as a, as a joystick and, and where, yeah. which way we can go. Um, that's big. Of course, uh, there's coloring of cars. So uh, paint used to be the biggest question. What color am I going to buy for my car? What if we said that the cars are going to be coming out with LEDs and today it could be red, but tomorrow it can be blue? Seriously, I saw something on this. I, I was, you know, kind of flabbergasted because at the end of the day, most cars are black, white and silver or some uh, version of anyway. So I think this is I'm looking forward to this. How what is this? How does this work? So basically, these are LEDs that are, are instead of the um, coating of the car being your yeah, you're coated with the LEDs and those LEDs yeah. can change. We're doing that with things like parking as well, where parking or streets, uh, normally you paint the lines on the street. 
now we have LED on the streets or or the runway for the airport or a parking lot. And we can change the configuration by just changing the, the brightness or, or, or the, the pattern of the lines. Wouldn't that be cool? Uh, I heard that cars were going back to, to knobs. Some people get too freaked out by the electronics. Where, where do you find that balance, Derek? So, well, the, the new cars or the future cars are coming with less functionality because the functionality is not going to be there because we're not going to be driving them. It's built um, in. Yeah. We are going to be sitting in them and enjoying the example <laughs> at CES this year is the Sony a feel. Uh, it is a, it's an electric car that basically is a full entertainment system in there. So while you're driving now, you're going to be watching movies and, and the seats rumble and then they shake and, uh, uh, you've got all kinds of speakers all over the place. The lighting changes with the mood of the movie. Uh, it is like a little entertainment system, but the thing is actually going to self-drive. Uh, wow. All of a sudden, I see the Titanic colliding with the Poseidon adventure or something there like that. Go. Yeah, my goodness. Uh, what uh, you were, I was, my next issue was entertainment. So you've sort of mixed, you mixed transportation and entertainment together there. But what about entertainment and, so and the obvious stuff? These are displays are always really uh, prevalent at that, that show. The newest thing, I guess, would be transparent TVs, where the TV is actually totally transparent. So you can put it in the middle of the room and mm. you could you could put like a ball bouncing that could be seen by both sides, but otherwise it's transparent. You can look through it. When you want to watch a movie, uh, it darkens up uh, and, and then wow. it's just a traditional display. But this is, this is big. But it also gives a three-dimensional effect because the TV is a little bit wider. Uh, you can see through it, but you can have different layers in there so that it looks almost three-dimensional. Now, this is true of eyewear at CES, too. There's a product that, that has the ability to darken and lighten your glasses, depending on what mood you want or how much mm. sun is out there. Traditionally, that's done been done by transitional glass, but this is now using electricity, and it's lighting and darkening the glass to, to give you a shade or no shade. Man, oh man, I'm as stunned now as I was 20 years ago when we chatted about this, and we'll chat more. Derek Sarda with us, President of Rolling Thunder, talking about what's new and exciting at the Electronic Show in Las Vegas. Always fascinating, Derek. Thanks for the time. Be well. Anytime. Take care. This was a um, this is a pretty big announcement, and uh, we always love to have economic development on uh, for the city and talk about the great things that are going on and, and where we've come and where we're going. Hamilton's set to become home to Canada's largest sugar refinery. Uh, and the announcement, uh, Port of Hamilton and uh, Sioux Crow can and Hope of Ports, um, sourcing say that a one, $135 million investment in a new refinery will equate to the production of some 1 million metric tons of sugar per year at a forthcoming Pier 15 location. Uh, and of course, supports uh, food ingredient sector and help builds a resilient supply chain. Notably, uh, agricultural cargo has grown as a proportion of the port's total tonnage. To talk more about all of this and what it means going forward and spinoff, Ian Hamilton is with us, president and CEO of the Hamilton Port Authority, and Jonathan Taylor, founder and CEO of Sucro Can Sourcing. Thanks for joining us. Hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. All right. yeah, thanks, I will. Uh, what I'll day. do is, 
It's since this is a huge announcement, and since there's two of you on, all uh, first of all, I'll start with Jonathan uh, from Suncrow Can Sourcing. Uh, tell us exactly what you're building here, exactly what what you're trying to do, and and how you're expanding. Yeah, thank you, Scott. Uh, great question. So, you know, we we part we've been partnered with uh, Hopa here in Hamilton already for ten years, and. Um, you know, our story is, is an interesting one. I encourage uh, listeners to look into our, a little bit about our company. Uh, we started as a small company and, uh, you know, the way the, 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 the market structured here in Canada, um, the two big players here, um, you know, weren't really pushing, keeping up with the demand of the, of the Canadian market. Um, we've taken kind of a leadership role in that. Um, and, you know, we, we're adding the capacity that the Canadian market needs. And we see a clear opportunity on the export side into the U.S. So we're taking advantage of those two fronts here with this massive capacity that we've announced. What does this mean as far as spinoff industry, those who would use your product? Uh, you plant somewhere, do they come around you? Well, it's, it's, the raw material is imported. Um, and, and, you know, there's no cane being grown here in, in, in Canada for obvious yeah, reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, but it, but it's more about food manufacturers. Uh, you know, you know the market has has gone through you know period periods of of, of lack of supply. Um, just recently, you know, there's a lot of news in Western Canada, uh, but that you know it's, it's been the same here in Eastern Canada in the last few years. So it's about food manufacturing having uh, you know having the supply um, assurances um, so they can continue growing you know, uh, and, and manufacturing more food products here in Canada. How much do the issues around supply chain over the last few years, whether it's conflict, whether it's uh, global pandemics, factor into a decision like this? That's a great question, Scott. Um, it's, it, it, it really is a big part of it. Um, I think everybody, you know, appreciates that, you know, 10 times more than, you know, maybe, you know, five, six years ago. Um, but absolutely, it's 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 a key part of the, of the business model. And how long does it take something like this to get up and running? How long does it take from idea to to the point where you're you're in business? Yeah, great question. I mean, you could argue it's ten years in the building. <laughs> um, uh -huh. Ian Ian can tell you a little bit more about that, but. Uh, you know, it's the, you know the model started you know quite you know almost ten years ago. But in terms of the physical construction, I mean, you know, we're hoping to break ground um, in the next couple of months, and and we you know we're targeting you know summer fall of twenty five to be running. All right, Ian, uh, where do you put them? How does this all fit into sort of the redevelopment, the the resourcing of the harbor? Yeah, uh, thanks, Scott. They're going to um, they're going to be on uh, Pier 15, adjacent to where the Randall Reef Project is, and that's the uh, remediation project um, in, the, in the harbor going uh, due, due to be completed in the next few years. And the exciting thing is they'll be able to utilize that new um, new dock space to uh, to unload their unload their sugar. So right at the end of Sherman Avenue, and uh, their their investment in in the port has been over the years has been fantastic, and now it's uh, this is really the um, the cherry on top of this on the Sunday, and we're so excited to be to be working with them and um, help them uh, support them whatever way we can to build the uh, the largest sugar refining it, refining institution in the country. 
As you, you talked earlier, but there's there's 120 agri-food businesses today in Ontario and thousands or in on Hamilton and thousands of them in Ontario. And uh, as Jonathan suggested, this is going to um, this is really going to um, give them the uh, the comfort levels they need to to invent, invest in their own business and expand their own business. And the spinoff is going to be um, probably closer to a billion dollars. Uh, talk a little bit, Ian, how the port has changed over the years, because again, it doesn't matter what you're moving in and out. If you've got a port, um, you're busy, you're working. Um, how has that changed over the years, especially as you revamp lots of portions of this area? Yeah. And it's, um, it's great, great for our listeners to understand that. Ten, when I, when I joined 15 years ago, 80% of our business was around the uh, the steel industry, steel making and finished steel coming coming in. And although steel is still a critically important commodity for us, what we've seen is a uh, dramatic shift into um, agricultural products. And now over a third of our business coming through Hamilton, in and out of Hamilton, is um, is agricultural products. And this supports the uh, city strategy around developing agri um, agri businesses and attracting agri businesses to the to the area. So 10 years, 15 years ago, we were doing uh, close to um, close to 11 million tons. And today we're still doing close to 11 million tons. But the big difference is that um, the steel volumes and steel making volumes have um, have dropped, whereas um, agricultural business has um, has dramatically, dramatically grown. How does this change the complexion of the port, Ian? It's um, it's another step forward, and this is a huge investment for us. But uh, another step forward, where we're seeing that uh, ports are no longer just about uh, marine, and they're really about uh, being multimodal industrial hubs. And um, hopefully, Jonathan will concur. But the one of the attractions for the Port of Hamilton is having access to rail, having access to marine, having access to to markets, and also having the industrial space that we can um, we can develop to house the um, the actual manufacturing. So it really creates a sort of um, a one-stop shop for uh, for both your logistics and your um, and your manufacturing needs. Uh, Jonathan, why Hamilton, and what about jobs for the area? Yeah, good question, Scott. I mean, you know, we landed in Hamilton ten years ago. We've got we, we've had great support from Hopa. Um, there were other ports trying to pull this, you know, pull us into them, and at the end of the day, you know, Hamilton is a great place. Um, you've got the workforce. Um, and hope has been a great partner to us and, uh, and, and, you know, that's why we, we've chosen, we've chosen HOPA, um, in terms of jobs, you know, there, there's going to be, you know, quite a bit of jobs added to where we are today. I think today, you know, we're somewhere around 50, 60 jobs and that number will probably double in the next couple of years. So, um, definitely a key part of that as well. All right. Uh, sounds like a win-win situation all around. Ian Hamilton with us, president and CEO of the Hamilton Oshawa Port Authority Ports. Jonathan Taylor, founder and CEO of Sucro Can Sourcing, a uh, big refinery, sugar refinery coming to the shores of the Hammer. Congratulations, gentlemen. Well done and good luck moving forward. Thank you, Scott. Thank you very much. Thanks. This is kind of odd, uh, considering uh, the energy that Alberta is sitting on. Um, but uh, earlier on in the week, when temperatures, and still are, incredibly, incredibly cold, uh, minus 30 to minus 40 degrees with the wind chill out there, uh, temperatures reported um, um I guess a few days ago and you know, like Alberta, that's, you know, uh, that's cold. No two ways about it. I lived in Alberta. I lived in Calgary for three years and I've experienced minus 40 and it's a dry cold. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, it is. But minus 40 is minus 40. And minus 40 sounds, uh, believe me, uh, I think minus 20 in uh, a cold climate or a damper climate like Quebec is worse than minus 40 in Alberta because it's dry, but that's just me. Uh, but certainly having issues with power and rolling blackouts, uh, Albertans being asked to cut back. How can that be? Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, and with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, and thank you, and uh, glad I'm not out in, uh, in Alberta or my old hometown, birthplace, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Oh, yeah, there's another cool one. All right, so why is Alberta going through this? Um, why are they having these issues? I think the origins are many, but the most important is the decision of the previous government in Alberta, the Notley government, to shut down uh, at least three major coal power generating plants prematurely and not provide alternative uh, natural gas backup until 2023. So you pay companies uh, so much money to shut down their production. Uh, obviously, many of them had, uh, you know, had commitments, longer-term commitments to uh, to customers and to clients and ultimately to consumers. Uh, so the Alberta government paid $1.3 billion to shut these down and said, well, we can make up the difference by renewables, by windmills and by solar panels, and yes, some natural gas eventually. But in the rush to be trendy and cool and uh, be environmentally, uh, uh, you know, uh, irrelevant, the uh, the government uh, created a, uh, obviously a shortage, which became very acute in the minus 40, minus 50 range. Uh, something we haven't seen. I mean, we've seen minus 30s and 40s, as you pointed out, but minus uh, 45, minus 50 isn't something you normally see, and that really put a strain yeah. on uh, on electricity on the grid. More importantly, Alberta's population has exploded. People can get jobs there. They can actually get homes there, and they can afford them. So you've seen uh, a significant increase. Uh, so much so, by the way, Scott, they get two. They get three new federal ridings in the next election. So the combination of those factors uh, led to what we saw on the weekend, and thankfully, uh, it averted uh, a complete collapse of the grid. Uh, considering Canada's abundance of cleaner uh, liquid natural gas, why would they not have this in place before they started uh, turning off coal-fired? Uh, generators? Good question. Uh, and you would think that a government that is responsible would have taken the advice of those uh, many who declared that this would create an imminent problem. In it just the, seems uh, bizarre, Dan, because this is like the gas capital of Canada and they, they don't, they're not using it. Yeah, well, this is what happens when you have mandates telling us that we have to go green and shut down what is obviously the only thing that keeps us, uh, you know, uh, not just civilized, but keeps us warm in the winter and uh, and uh, cool in, in, in summers. Uh, it is uh, an abject example of just how short-sighted green policies are, putting all our eggs in one basket with renewables and then trying to point fingers. Look, these things are costly. They don't work, and they certainly don't work when they're needed most. Uh, it is embarrassing, obviously, that uh, the energy capital of Canada, arguably even of North America, finds itself in that kind of vulnerability. But it has its mm. precedent. Just three years ago, Texas went through the same thing. Trendy folks thought it'd be great to have these little windmills out there and uh, solar panels. They didn't work. The windmills stopped working at a certain degree and a temperature, and they weren't natural gas backed up. Uh, 70, 80% of people wound up with no power. So uh, this is uh, wokeism, uh, and if you think reality isn't going to come back and bite us on the backside, this is a good example for the second time of what not to do. I think, uh, by the way, I'm not hearing much from the green crowd, the climate crowd these days. They've been awfully quiet 
but I think this is really a seminal reason as to why one can expect that uh, the federal government's policies, uh, supported by the NDP and the Greens, uh, is uh, is likely to uh, to be uh, completely obliterated by voters in the next election, as it should be. So what now for Alberta? Do they uh, obviously try to get more natural gas up and running? I understand they're also interested uh, in nuclear as well. Yeah, everyone's interested in nuclear. It's something even Ralph Klein, had, uh, pre- previous premier, had talked about. Look, the, uh, there's a very large plant that's coming on uh, stream probably in March, April. It might be too late by then to deal with this current situation. But no doubt uh, the new plant in Edson is, uh, is going to alleviate some of that trouble. Uh, there's also, of course, neighboring state provinces, uh, Saskatchewan in particular, but to a lesser extent, British Columbia. But Saskatchewan and its premier made, I think, a very important uh, you know, factual comment. We are prepared to help our friends in Alberta in the same way they've helped us in the past. We're going to send them what energy they need should they need it. And uh, we want to remind the federal government and the trendies out there that uh, we use coal and we use natural gas. And that's how we save ourselves in these cold climates. So, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's an awful situation. It, we, it's bringing us to the brink where people can actually get killed in these kind of circumstances. But I think the silver lining here is that uh, it, enough is enough with green fantasies and green renewables. They don't work. They're not ready for prime time in a country like Canada. Uh, it, no one in their right mind should be promoting them, not even the activists like Stephen Gibo and other organizations out there that spend a lot of our money trying to tell us what a bad job we're doing. Why isn't Saskatchewan on natural gas, considering they're burning coal still? Is that Obviously, they're moving towards that. Eventually, but I mean, this is uh, also a province that takes the coal generation and uh, sequesters it. Uh, they're using uh, the, the technology of, uh, of getting uh, pollutants uh, into the ground and, importantly, capturing the natural gas and burying it. The Boundary Dam uh, facility has been around for quite some time. So, uh, you know, this whole no- notion around uh, being able to, uh, as it were, uh, you know, divide and take away carbon and use it for other purposes, but not getting the atmosphere. Uh, Saskatchewan is saying, yeah, we're going to do it, but we're going to do it in our time, not on a a bunch of trendies in Ottawa who are trying to impress their friends in California or, you know, do the international trip and, you know, sip back a bit of Perrier and eat canapes while the country freezes in the dark. (laughs) Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Is anybody asking why the uh, energy capital of Canada is cold and asking people to Cut back? Just seems odd. Uh, Thanks as always, Dan. You no doubt know, what does this mean for us in Canada? Uh, their electoral, uh, electoral system certainly a lot different from ours. Former President Donald Trump has won the Iowa caucuses uh, last night, capturing the first state in the 2024 Republican presidential nomination process. Uh, to talk more about all of this and what it means moving forward, Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. He's here now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. Reggie, why is Iowa such a big deal in the grand scheme of of the United States? Many will look at this and say, what's the big deal? Why is this so important? Well, number one, it's the first votes that are cast uh, in uh, any election race. And if you ask somebody in Iowa, they'll say, why not Iowa? But, the um, Mm. you know, a bigger a bigger kind of, you know, piece of that picture is, um, you know, by by the time Iowa wraps up, we have a better idea as to what the race is going to look like. And I spoke with a, a political expert uh, in Iowa a couple of days ago, and he made the point of saying that Iowa separates the pretenders and the contenders. Uh, and here we are now the day after Iowa, 
Uh, a number of people have dropped out of the race, uh, and Donald Trump has has kind of painted himself now as not only the 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 candidate likely to get the most votes going forward, but also as what the new Republican establishment looks like. Uh, surprises, including someone like Ron DeSantis, who obviously put a lot into this. Uh, sure. I mean, look, if you're Ron DeSantis, you're painting this as a victory for yourself because you came in second. The problem here is that Ron DeSantis came in a very distant second to a historic win by Donald Trump on the plus side uh, of 50 percent. Coming in 30 points behind that, sure, you came in second, but you only eked out Nikki Haley, who came in third by a couple of thousand votes. And that's after uh, Ron DeSantis spent uh, countless weeks and months on the ground and and kind of dumped all of his money and hopes into Iowa. He didn't win a single um, a single county. Nikki Haley won one county. So the question going forward is, at least from the DeSantis campaign, is is that sustainable? Is there enough momentum given the next two contests uh, are, are heavily favored to either Donald Trump or Nikki Haley? Uh, as you said, momentum shifting here. There was a time when uh, many thought that DeSantis would beat Haley. Clearly, that is changed. Uh, but as you mentioned, uh, Trump has such a substantial lead. Is there any way Haley can catch up? Well, I mean, in New Hampshire, uh, Nikki Haley has put a lot of her time and effort uh, into that state. Uh, and and the, the gap between her and Donald Trump is into the single digits here. Why is that? Well, New Hampshire has it's a conservative state, but it holds a lot more uh, independence. It holds uh, more non-aligned voters. Uh, so there's a chance for someone to run up the middle, uh, unlike someone like Ron DeSantis, who pitched himself as Trump light. And at the same time, voters will say, well, why wouldn't we just go to kind of original recipe mm. uh, Donald <laughs> Trump? Uh, Nikki Haley has a chance to to make a big mark in uh, New Hampshire, which then leads her into South South Carolina. Yes, Donald Trump is going to do very well in a state that is, um, you know, heavily saturated with the evangelical vote. But she's also the former governor in that state. So a good showing in South Carolina, at least keeping her in second, makes it the two person race that she was talking about last night. If you take away Donald Trump's legal woes, I mean, is there anything standing in his way of, of becoming the nominee? I mean, he it certainly looks like he's on his way to doing that. Will any of his legal woes stop him or, or deter him from getting to the White House? No, they won't. Uh, and even if even if a conviction shows up, uh, you know, a, a president, a, a person yeah. can still run for president if they're convicted. Look, Donald Trump has learned and mastered the art of turning his 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 legal liabilities into uh, a political gain. Uh, and Iowa yeah. is uh, is an exact picture of that, where he walked away with 50 percent of the vote, despite the fact that he's facing 91 charges in a series of different federal cases. I think, Scott, one of the more important things to look at is some of the exit polling last night uh, that showed that two thirds of those caucus goers said that, A, if Donald Trump was convicted of a crime, he would still be fit for office. But B, the same two thirds also don't believe that Joe Biden is the legitimately elected president in the United States. And I think that nothing is standing in Donald Trump's way because this is now Donald Trump's Republican Party and he is the new establishment uh, for the Republicans. Uh, Nothing new here. Probably no surprises for the Democrats. What do they do moving forward with Joe? 
I mean, he's going to continue to, uh, you know, move as he is. You know, there are some in his campaign who feel that he needs to be a little bit more aggressive. Uh, at the same time, you know, a fundraising email came out from the Biden campaign last night uh, explaining Donald Trump was likely going to be the winner, uh, still asking supporters to donate. I think what the Biden campaign is going to look at is the fact that they are now going into this race with more money than anyone on the Republican side because they hemorrhaged so much of it uh, in Iowa. I believe Donald Trump has has one of the deepest purses in Democratic electoral history um, continuing on the next several months. So if you're Biden, you're saying, look, I did this once in 2020. I can do it again in 2024. The difference here is Biden doesn't have the same popularity that he did in 2020. Trump still has the same enthusiasm that he did in 2020, even though he lost. So it may be a Biden-Trump rematch. The question is, is Biden going to pull out enough support to, to pull out the same win that he did four years ago? This is going to be fascinating to watch. Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Watch Global tonight for more on all of this. As always, Reggie, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Rock University researchers studying the effects of kindness on mental health and well-being is encouraging people to practice kindness especially during the winter months. That seems impossible now, doesn't it? Uh, Sandra Bosaki says acts of kindness can go a long way to help people, including those carrying out the acts of kinds, uh, kind acts, fend off their winter blues. Bosaki adds that small, kind gestures such as helping with a task, opening a door, the act of smiling or talking with someone can have an, a significant impact on one's well-being and mental state. To talk more about all of this, Sandra Bosaki with us, professor in the Faculty of Education, director of Brock's Theory of Mind in Education, and here now. Sandra, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I am. Thank you for inviting me, Scott. So, Sandra, this sounds so easy. You know, it's better to give than receive. I remember hearing that as a kid around Christmas time and such. It sounds so easy. Why is it so difficult to implement? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's why we're really fascinated about this in terms of especially teenagers. We're really focusing around adolescents, uh, those between 11 years old and maybe 18, so it's those teenage years, and acts of kindness, they do seem just kind of commonplace every day, um, you, but you know when someone's being kind and you know when you're being kind, but we don't really know what the teenagers are really thinking about what kindness really means, and also what kind of uh, things are they doing with other people in terms to show kindness, but also to themselves as well. So we're looking at kind thoughts, kind acts, and also um, emotions related to that and how that connects to being kind to others, but also to yourself. So because they don't always, they may not always match up. Uh, you bring up an interesting point because it sounds it's it, it sounds more like a, a, a lack of connectivity here um, that um, people don't realize that if they do this they will feel better. Is there not simple ways we can experiment with this or examples of it to sh- you know to 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 make it, people more aware of it? Right. Yes. No. That's a, again. That's a great question. And and another suggesting um, just as simple things you don't need to spend money, for example, on, on helping someone else just feel better and feel, um, put them in a, place them in a better mood, 
in terms of other people, but also yourself. So something like something simple, like opening a door for someone or um, just maybe helping someone with the task, especially in a school situation with uh, teenagers in a classroom. If they have, um, they see someone perhaps, you know, struggling with something or have a challenge or just maybe in terms of uh, lunchtime. And, you know, if you know someone prefers a particular things to eat or particular, um, you know, uh, activities, you could help out and, and help them with that. So it's just knowing what other people feel and need that would make themselves feel better. That's a part of it. But also uh, knowing what you like to do as well to help others feel better. Are we more selfish now? Are we more self-consumed? So as a result of that, we don't look outside that world to what's affecting others. Yes. Again, that's a great question, and that's what one of the questions we're interested in is this notion of theory of mind or the ability to read other people's minds or to try to understand their perspectives, their thoughts and emotions, and then from that, trying to predict what they'll do. So in order to be kind to someone... To be really kind, you have to try to think about what does that, what would that person like me to do to make them feel better. So it's that type of thinking that we're interested in exploring with teenagers to see are they are they thinking about this when they're actually being kind, or is it more of a um, unintentional kindness in terms of more random acts of kindness? Is this about a technique, Sandra, or is this about teaching empathy? That's an excellent point, and it is connected, the ability to um, empathy in terms of, there's quite a bit of research on it, and it looks at the ability to understand um, emotions in others and or to feel with someone, to try to understand. And but it's a combination of that as well as perspective taking, and that's why Theory of Mind sort of looks at all of these different abilities and then also what do you do in terms of action? So that connects more to compassion. And that's sort of my next question. How do we do this? How do we think of this, put our mindset in this direction when maybe we're not feeling the best anyway? Yes. No, that's, a, again, a great question. And, again, just uh, spending time with someone and, and observing as well what people, how they act, what do they enjoy doing, and talking as well. We're also looking at aspects of conversations and talk and speech and what teenagers, what do they say to themselves when they're being kind to others? What do they say to themselves when they're being kind to themselves? So things like self-talk and self-language as well. How has the pandemic affected this discussion? I remember early days of the pandemic when we didn't know what was going on. We were all locked up. You know, 7 o'clock, everybody goes and started banging their pots and pans. It was like, wow, this is kind of neat. And that lasted for about a year. And then things went became divisive. So um, uh, how, how has the pandemic affected this? No, that's a great question. And it's something that we're exploring at, still. I mean, it, it, uh, we're just... yeah sort of coming out of the pandemic, and I think um, one of the pieces of our, it's um, longitudinal research over a few years that we're working with the teenagers and looking at their uh, well-being and also their 
uh, mental skills and thinking skills and also self-concept and self-esteem. But we found that um, part of this notion of being alone, so preferences for solitude or preferences for being with others, played a part in uh, during the, the pandemic because there were restricted times and people were unable to connect physically. So there were um, different uh, options for being alone versus being with others. And everyone has different affinities uh, and preferences for uh, their alone time versus their social time. So we're uh, interested in how, how that plays a part in terms of feeling lonely or not lonely and how being kind may be able to help with that. How important is it to have face-to-face relationships and not just do all this on social media? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. I think, again, that's something that we're all, uh, many researchers um, are exploring, especially in terms of adolescence. And I think that's just something we're, we're just exploring. It's a, it's a complex issue, and I think it's we're looking... We're interested in the um, trying to look at the, the quality of relationships, the emotional closeness you could feel with someone in terms of whether that's um, face-to-face, whether it's you can achieve that online. I think it's very um, different for each individual, but we're, we're, we're exploring that as well. Are you surprised, Sandra, you got to study this stuff now? Wasn't this just uh, the way we were way back when? Now we're studying how to be nice. Well, I, that's a, a good point. Um, and again, I think it's this point of being mindful and thoughtful in, in acts of kindness and and intentional. I think that's something, it connects to some of the areas around mindfulness and being mindful and thoughtful, um, putting some thought into it as well. So I think there's um, a, an increase in interest in that. Sandra Basaki with us, Professor of Faculty of Education and Director of Brock's Theory of Mind in Education. A simple act of kindness. The old, it's better to give than receive. Helps to get you uh, out of the feeling blahs. And we're not even into February yet. Sandra, thanks for the time. Fascinating. Be well. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. There's lots of rumor floating around and apparently internal government documents as well saying that Loblaws is lobbying the provincial government trying to get them to ease up on the rules around the sale of cannabis to get it into grocery stores. <laughs> Let's bring in Dr. Michael Armstrong, Associate Professor Goodman School of Business, Brock University. He's here now. Michael, thank you for your time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for inviting me. Michael, this seems uh, odd in the sense that there's so many restrictions around this, whether it's food or you're selling alcohol or whatever. Uh, Is this even viable? Can it even happen the way the laws are now? Well, the way the laws are now, no. Uh, And, of course, that's why Law of Laws uh, has been lobbying the government, is they'd like to see a change in rules that would allow it. So as it stands right now, uh, Ontario, like most other provinces, says if you want to sell cannabis, it has to be in a dedicated cannabis store. So, uh, you know, you have to have your own entrance into this cannabis store so you can check ID, all that kind of thing. Uh, so the windows have to be glazed over, that, that sort of thing. Now, there's no rule that says you can't have that as part of a larger building, like in a strip mall, but you have to have your own entrance. So that's a problem because if you're a big retailer like Loblaw, you're thinking, well, you know, you already sell thirty to 40,000 different products if you're looking at some of the big superstores. Uh, you'd like to add a cannabis aisle um, and sell that along with everything else you sell. 
Um, so that's not allowed under the current rules uh, in Ontario. It is allowed in some other provinces, and there are some parallels we could look at for tobacco and alcohol. That was my next question, Michael. Um, you know, it seems that grocery stores have moved away from selling cigarettes, uh, although they do sell, uh, obviously, uh, uh, alcohol and, or beer and wine and such, and have even included pharmacies. So how do they... How do they square this circle? I mean, I guess it's not out of the pharmacy department, but but again, <laughs> they've got no tobacco products yet. They may use cannabis. They may sell cannabis. It seems like it's an odd uh, combination. Oh well, uh, first of all, the grocery stores do sell tobacco, or at least the ones I go to do. But they have it in a separate uh, right, right behind a customer service desk, typically. Right, mm-hmm. and it's a it's. Obscures. You don't see it unless you you realize. Oh yeah, there's some cabinets back there with nothing on the front. Um, so grocery stores do you sell cabinet, uh, tobacco. Uh, some of them now sell alcohol, beer, and wine. Yeah. Uh, and as you know, they have pharmacies. So this is just actually another example. You've got a store. You're already selling tens of thousands of products. You're already paying the rent, the heat, the light. Uh, every extra product you can add to your mix is in addition to your profit. It doesn't even have to be a big profit margin. Grocery stores, most of their products are pretty low profit margin. But since you've basically covered all your fixed costs, every little extra product you can add is an addition to your profit. So that's that's why Loblaw is looking to say, well, you know, cannabis, yes, it's controversial, it's new, it's, it's special. But on the other hand, it's a consumer packaged good that comes in little boxes, just like <laughs> a lot of everything else they sell in the store. So they, they could use their existing stores, their existing website, their existing transportation logistics network. They could sell cannabis extremely efficiently, low profit margin, and it would still be a moneymaker for them. The government so, has talked about how expa- they're expanding uh, shops in Ontario. Do you think this is part of the mix? Because they're talking about doubling the amount of outlets, which which you could easily do if you say, okay, they're in every Loblaw store now. That would double it pretty quick. <laughs> Well, they haven't quite said they're doubling the stores. What they've said is they doubled the maximum stores you can have per chain, per owner. Mm-hmm. So previously, you were limited to 75 stores. Uh, now they're doubling that, say, okay, any given chain can have up to 150 stores. So for perspective, uh, there are about 50 Costco's in Ontario, um, whereas there's about 150 Walmarts. So the government rule change is instead of saying you're you're going to be as rare as a Costco, it's more like, okay, you can be as rare as a Walmart. So Walmarts, you know, they're not on every street corner, but there's probably one near or in every community. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're separate initiatives. But yes, Loblaws, if it was allowed to sell cannabis in a store, would love to have the 150 rule change. In fact, they'd like to say, well, can we double or triple that? Um, so the the now... This isn't completely unheard of. In Newfoundland, uh, ever since legalization, they have allowed smaller communities, where, which can't support a standalone cannabis store, right. to sell cannabis kind of in the local community, general purpose drugstore, right. grocery store. Kind like of the LCBO so like stores. Yeah. stores. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Only in small communities. Uh, Manitoba, I believe, technically has that as a possibility, but I don't think they've actually implemented it. Um, and that's particularly, you know, as Newfoundland is does, it's particularly attractive if you're talking about how do you serve a small community. Right. The other possible exempt, uh, case is in Nova Scotia, they sell cannabis in their liquor stores. So they don't, um, so they're sharing the same store space with alcohol. 
So this is probably, Michael, just a matter of time when you think about it, isn't it? It's the question of time and I think politics. You know, what does the Ford government want to do? Uh, I mean, if you go back a few years, uh, tobacco was more common grocery stores, but it was absolutely new alcohol. Uh, mm. This government has moved gradually to allowing more alcohol, beer and wine. You know, I think we have, what, 400 grocery stores. Uh, they've recently announced they're going to open that up, uh, I think, as of 2026. Uh, so you're going to start to see gr- uh, alcohol aisles and uh, a lot more commonly in grocery stores. Um, so if the government wanted to, they could say, well, let's expand uh, and let, you know, grocery stores can do kind of like what they do with tobacco. They can have a, a cannabis right. behind the counters. So you have to show ID before you can look at anything. If they really want to, they could do like alcohol say, okay, you can have a cannabis aisle just kind of open, but you have to check everybody's ID before they buy. Right. Or they could just do what they currently do and say, no, we only want cannabis in cannabis stores. And of course, yeah. cannabis stores are, uh, would be very concerned about having to compete with Loblaws. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Michael Armstrong with us, Associate Professor at Goodman School of Business, Brock University. Uh, uh, cannabis in the grocery store. Loblaws lobbying for that. Is it a sign of the times? Is it coming? Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. There was chatter towards the end of uh, last year that the U.S. could be lowering its interest rates, uh, even up to three po- uh, three times throughout the course of this year, 2024. Bank of Canada holding uh, their cards pretty close to the chest, saying, not willing to say that, but certainly that um, uh, that could be on the way. However, uh, today we find out that uh, the inflation rate uh, jumped to 3.4%, uh, thanks to gas prices, housing, groceries, and such. That's up from 3.1. Uh, what does that mean moving forward? Uh, does it put things on hold? Does it change our trajectory? Let's bring in Lawrence Shembry, Senior Fellow at the Fraser Institute and here now. Lawrence, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm well. Thanks, Scott, for inviting me. Are, are you surprised, Lawrence, to see this tick up? Or And some say this was sort of predicted. What are your thoughts? It, it was predicted because this time last year, gas prices fell. And uh, pretty sharply, and so just by arithmetic, um, the gas prices were going to add to inflation this time this time this year. So, you know, what happened last year has an impact on how you measure inflation this year. And because gas prices fell last year fairly sharply at this time, um, meant that inflation was going to go up this year. Mm. What does that say about where we are? Does it change our position in any way? It's a little bit of a surprise, but it's only one one month of data. If you look at the trend, Scott, over the past uh, several months, the trend of inflation, you know, the headline inflation, the CPI number that we all look at, has been downwards. And, you know, the Bank of Canada pays attention to what we call the core inflation measures, and they bumped up a little bit, but generally their trend over for most of 2023, is downwards. So I wouldn't put too much weight on one month data. 
A chatter at the end of last year about how we could see rates cut in the United States up to uh, three times. Not so much optimism from the Bank of Canada playing the cards a little closer uh, to the chest. Does this change any of that? Do you what do you see in 2024 for Canada? Um, I think that you know the governor has said that uh, if inflation moves, you know, sustainably towards two percent, um, you know interest rate cuts are, are possible. So I think that, you know, in the second half of this year, we could see inflation below 3%. So I don't think we can rule out any interest rates cuts over the second half of this year. Uh, 2% still the sweet spot. Uh, the last few pounds in a diet are usually the hardest to lose. Where is the sweet spot? Is it still there? Well, it's still 2%, but it, it's just going to take... A while, and one has to be patient. It's just going to take a while to get there. You know, we, the pandemic was a big shock. It's going to take a, lo- a long time for that to unwind. But I think we've made a lot of progress. I mean, remember in June of 2022, inflation was 8%. We're now sitting at 3.4. I mean, it's taken some time, but I expect, you know, the trend will continue and we'll move t- towards 2% by the end of uh, 2024 and into 2025. So that's the sweet spot. That's what they're aiming for. That's the target for the Bank of Canada. Uh, Can you see them actually lowering, the Bank of Canada lowering rates in 2024, considering how volatile this seems to be? Why not keep going? Yeah, as I said, I mean, as I said earlier, I think in the second half of 2024, it's, it's possible if the Bank of Canada sees inflation on a you know, sort of sustainable trend towards 2%, I think it's uh, it's conceivable rates would come down. What's to stop it, Lawrence, from whipping right back up again, like a few months later because of that? Or do you, well, do you see it not having that much of an effect? The big red herring is really the geo- geopolitics. I mean, everyone's concerned about... Um, you know, oil prices and that feeds into gasoline prices. I mean, if things were to get more unsettled in the Middle East and oil prices were to rise sharply, I mean, that would have a big impact on gasoline prices here in Canada and globally. And, and that would cause an upward movement in inflation. So it's those kinds of shocks that, uh, that are very hard to predict, but there's always a risk they could happen. How should Canadians look at this, Lawrence, who might be feeling a little anxious? Well, I think they have to be patient. I mean, I think the reality is that we're we're in the we're moving in the right direction. I mean, the Bank of Canada has raised interest rates to to try to calm inflation, and you know what they've done is working. Inflation is coming down, um, and so I expect that trend to continue over time. And uh, it's a it's a gradual process. One has to be patient. And I think one can't get too perturbed about, as I said, one month of data. If you look over the course of the last year or so, inflation has been trending downwards, and I expect that to continue over the course of 2024. Lawrence Shembury with a senior fellow, Fraser Institute, talking about the inflation rate at 3.4, uh, up slight a, uh, a little bit from 3.1 in uh, since the past uh, the last September. Lawrence, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome. Nice to talk to you, Scott. Thank you. It's honestly to the point now where you just kind of shake your head and throw your arms in the air, and you you, you wonder 
what road the uh, the current federal government is going on, uh, going down rather. But you know, you think of uh, the last two elections interference, uh, what happened with Michael Chong, um, uh, the David Johnston fiasco, all of that. Um, Trudeau's top advisor is now a part time job. Who will uh, the same person will keep her uh, full time position as deputy clerk? of the Privy Council. And to talk more about all of this and what it means, Christian Leprec, professor at the both uh, both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. He's here now. Christian, thank for the uh, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, yeah, you do wonder about what road they're on. Is it the road to hell? Is it the road to nowhere? So, uh, you and, know, and the highway to hell. So it's, uh, um, yeah, whatever it is, it's a pretty bumpy road. And it doesn't matter what section or what department you're talking about. And, I'm, you know, this started with a, a column that we saw in the Post from John Iveson. And this is what he's written in the last week, a column that says, Our Navy sinks towards impotence because Ottawa can't manage to procure ships. That's six days ago. Four days ago, uh, Canada left Spending moral support, left sending moral support and maple syrup in strikes against hootie lawlessness. And 11 hours ago, John Iveson, Trudeau's foreign interference advisor, is now a part time job. No experience required. It's not like these are one off things. This is a trend here, Christian. Well, sometimes you look at changes in government and you just have to figure, you know, or at least I figure, you know, maybe people just, uh, uh, this is just above my seniority and pay scale. Clearly, people who are much smarter than me and get paid much better uh, know better than I do, and we can only hope that that's the case here. Um, look, I mean, the the those are both two very busy offices, right? So the deputy clerk is a little bit like the CEO of government that makes things run. And the NSIA, I mean, this is an office that uh, increasingly, I mean, it doesn't just do domestic intelligence coordination; um, it also does international, handles a whole sorts of a host of international. Uh, files and, and and coordination issues. Um, and so to have one person run two very busy offices and offices where we know that, um, you know, on the one hand, uh, you look at uh, uh, the way the intelligence flows are running. And clearly we know from the David Johnson fiasco that uh, intelligence seems to get to the NSIA, but then the NSIA is probably pushing it up and out uh, to the right people. And on the other hand, you know, you look at just what's going on with, for instance, contracting and, and CBSA, look at the hundreds of unstaffed uh, appointments um, across the federal government. You know, these are both offices that you would think would be very busy. So to have one person doing them together, I mean, it might send a signal that they're unhappy with the way that office is structured or working. Uh, which, you know, I guess they felt probably a little let down uh, when it became public that information wasn't making it their way, but it doesn't look that that was the fault of the NSIA. Uh, Or it could be that, for instance, I mean, this is somebody who has lots of legal experience. Maybe the government has a big legislative agenda planned on security intelligence, but I'm not puzzled about that too, because the government has said, look, they've already turned down the idea of a foreign uh, agent registry. Uh, the amendments to the CSIS Act that they're proposing are very homeopathic. Uh, and so, you know, what are these other, do they anticipate major legislative changes before the next election? Look, I mean, the, 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 uh, the commission that they've uh, appointed isn't even going to report fully until December. So that doesn't really leave any, cha- any time to make significant legislative changes changes. 
And you have somebody who, of course, doesn't come out of the SNI community, out of the security intelligence community. So, you know, mm. it's like, you know, you've, you're, you're running a radio station and, uh, you know, you can see that maybe, uh, maybe you don't get a broadcast journalist, but maybe you get somebody who, you know, comes out of the finance business or so. But here you actually went across to the law firm across the street and said, hey, can you send us someone who can run the radio station? So mm. it's, it's, it's a little puzzling to me. Uh, and at a time when government appears to be getting bigger, we don't seem to be or have the manpower to put on to something like this. And considering uh, election interference and all the whole David Johnson thing and what have you, it, it just appears that this is all kind of dropped off the radar for the government. They just don't see this as a priority anymore or never did. Well, I think this is the glass half empty way to look at this appointment, right? That this is a government in general, in particular cabinet, that has never made security intelligence, let alone defense, a priority. And so part of this can also be a very public signal that we're actually not interested in the security and intelligence file. So, you know, we are deliberately going to understaff it to send a signal to the civil servants, which I think perhaps to some extent they feel with some of the leaks and so forth that they've had, uh, they feel that, you know, this is a community that perhaps they don't entirely trust, or maybe they don't like the advice that they've been getting uh, on issues such as research security or foreign interference, that they're simply sending a signal that, look, we're not going to make this a priority. And you can understand this, right? So from this government's perspective, look at cabinet. Right, the policies and priorities that this government has been driving have definitely not been security intelligence or defense priorities, and so maybe this is just a very public signal that going into the election, this will continue not to be a priority. Do you think this is a priority for Canadians? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, um, uh, look, I mean, we just had a report come out last month about this Canada being a, this country being a weak link in terms of fentanyl that instead of being brought by Chinese triads directly to Australia is now being brought through Canada. We know that Canada has been identified very publicly as a weak link when it comes to defense among the Western Alliance. And as you pointed out in your introduction, mm-hmm. um, and we know that U.S. intelligence officials have stated on public record that they are deeply concerned um, about the intelligence enterprise in Canada, including uh, possible infiltration by adversarial actors of some of our intelligence uh, intelligence enterprise um, and it seems on the law enforcement side we have great difficulty doing any of the prosecutions uh, related to uh, important national security files so I mean if you're looking at this from a Canadian perspective and from an allied and partner perspective uh, you would think that our national interests are certainly on the line here so uh, but you know ultimately there'll be an election and that will be an opportunity for Canadians to weigh in mm. you never win elections on security intelligence defense or foreign affairs issues, and maybe that's part of the gamble that the government is taking here. We remember, though, that uh, in the past that, that this was a big issue, that this was something that needed to be uh, corrected, that this was something that needed attention. And it, it certainly looks, you know, I mean, from, uh, uh, you know, appointing a special rapporteur to, uh, you know, you can do this and then you can be the de- deputy clerk of the Privy Council. It, it just seems that how do you ever uh, expect to find a solution if you don't put anyone on it? 
Well, but this might also be precisely the strategy, right? So, yeah. um, I mean, this is going to be a controversial file um, domestically in terms of debate. I mean, current the constituency that votes for the current government uh, is rather skeptical of the security intelligence community to uh, to begin with. We know this from their criticism of files that the conservatives handled uh, in that field. And so maybe this is actually precisely the strategy by the government to kick the can down the road, not having to make any controversial decisions, not having to make any decisions that might uh, alienate the government from China, for instance. Minister Jolie seems to have uh, really found her fondness again for China, if we look at just uh, uh, the last weeks and some of mm. the uh, pronouncements that uh, that she's made. Um, and so that this is precisely all intended to buy the government time to the next election um, and that people in PMO have simply decided, you know, these are problems that we'll worry about after the next election. And, uh, you know, if we win and if we lose, then it's someone else's problem. Christian Leprac, Professor, Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University Fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Have a great evening. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Good afternoon, Scott. Hope you are doing well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing very well. So you've thawed out. Tell us about your experience, how your drive home from the Bills game. Uh, yeah, you know, um, when you and I were on yesterday, and it was great, and it was fun, and it was fantastic, and, you know, didn't die, and uh, all that kind of stuff. It was chilly. Uh, I got to tell you though, anyone who's been to the Bill stadium at any point knows at the best of times, it's a difficult place to navigate on the roads because yeah. it's, you know, I mean, it's kind of as if you had built an NFL stadium in Ancaster or Dundas and then said, let's put 80,000 people. Or maybe there. downtown in a residential well, area. <laughs> any, anywhere that you would think this is not built for this kind of traffic. And then. With all the snow they had, lanes were blocked because of snow and on. So it was, uh, let's just say that, uh, you did not want to get there with not a full tank of gas because it was, it, it's, it was a tough place to get in and of, uh, into and out of yesterday, but Hey, it was, uh, it was, it was one of those things, Scott, that, you know, I don't know that I would want to go to a hundred games in those temperatures, No, but to go once and to have the experience, absolutely. It's worth doing. And think of the tales you will tell for the next however many decades. Uh, it, well, every time now there's a super cold weather game. Yeah, of course we'll be chatting about that. It's, uh, I, I'll say the only people I think who did not, and I maybe, I don't even know what I mentioned yesterday on your show. So I, so forgive me, but my, I was in a brain freeze at that moment. Um, the only people I think who were not having a great time were the Steelers fans around us who were, who spent most of the game being pelted with snowballs from Bill's yeah. fans. Uh, <laughs> In fact, it was like, okay, we better keep our hood up just in case a wayward one from behind hits us in the back of the neck. And then you got cold snow going down your shirt and you'll be freezing the rest of the day. I, I must admit it was pretty funny whenever the Bills scored that you saw the snow go in the air. It looked pretty cool on TV. It was, that was great. That was, you know, every stadium and you, obviously you can only do this under certain circumstances, but every place has its traditions. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure they've done it at Green Bay and other yeah. places, but. It's so cool and so fun to see when the Bills would score just thousands of people around the stadium throwing snow into the air. And it looked like little, it, it almost looked like a, a, you know, when you're watching the movies and someone's shooting a gun and hits the water and you get that spray up, it just <laughs> hundreds and thousands of those all around the stadium. It was great. It was a, it was one of those cool things that, 
well, literally cool, but it's one of those things that, you know, you can only do it in certain places and only fan bases do it. And yeah, it was, uh, the, the whole thing, as I say, one of those experiences that I don't know that you want to do again and again and again, but I would do it this time. And I'll tell you one thing, Scott, and I, you know, as the game is going on and as it looks like the bills are going to win, the conversation in the stands turned to one thing very quickly. And that is everybody before the game knew if the bills win, if they won, they know who was coming next week to Buffalo to play the Kansas city chiefs. Yeah. Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas city chiefs have never in his entire career, have never had an away playoff game. Every single game Mm -hmm. in the playoffs, except for the Super Bowls, he has played at Arrowhead Stadium. And so not only are fans like totally psyched up about this, about, you know, giving him the special Buffalo Bills treatment, but so many people talking about how they were going to heckle Taylor Swift and how they were going to throw snowballs at her private box and all the Taylor Swift will get more <laughs> attention and I don't think it'll be red carpet attention. I think it will be a special Buffalo Bills treatment of Taylor Swift if she shows up next week. Until she brings out the acoustic guitar and says, I'll sing a song if you'd like. Well, I change that. part of what makes them really chapped, I think a little bit is that of the like 200 cities she's doing, she, she skipped Buffalo. And so already they were chapped at Taylor Swift for skipping Uh, Buffalo over. And now she, the the big joke was she didn't want to come to our nice arena downtown. Well, good. Now she gets to come to Orchard Park in the middle of winter. Ha ha ha. All right. Who's on the show tonight? What are you going to be talking about? Uh, well, I got a question for you. Under the circumstances, we're going to talk about this first up. Under the circumstances with tax increases that we're looking at for metro, uh, for metropolises everywhere, for cities everywhere, should local politicians, mayors and councillors voluntarily take pay cuts to lead the way, to show that they mm. are wanting to set an example? It would, Scott, it would not change the bottom line, really. No. Uh, but it would show Mm -hmm. something about their, maybe this is the argument. It would show something about their leadership and we know it's tough and we're going to do this. What do you think? Uh, we got to eat too. They'll say, you know, come on. I, I don't know. I mean, this has been talked about a lot whenever, uh, we're in tough times. I haven't seen it yet. It'll be interesting to see if we see it moving, moving forward. Uh, The same has been uh, questioned of, uh, Olivia Chow, the mayor of Toronto. That's where we're talking about. That's where this thing has started with the uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, but yeah, we'll see. And then, and an interesting component she's adding, your, your taxes are going up X number, like 10 point something. And if we don't get the extra money from the federal government for refugees are going up 16. What a very fascinating way to position your uh, municipal tax increase on the federal government. Well, and I believe if I'm not incorrect, that she's also due for a pretty good raise as well, just to top the whole thing off, just to really get people upset about this thing. At the very least, I would think every politician should say at the very least, bare minimum, no raises for us this year. You know what? When you're talking double digit increases, why not? That would go a long way. Well, (laughs) we'll see. All right. Thank you, Scott. Have a good show. See you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.